most of your gifts, maybe all of your gifts. And as we are wrapping these gifts and preparing for Christmas, we are looking forward to giving these gifts and looking forward to the responses to the gifts when they are opened, right? Like that's, that's part of the fun is that you wrap them so you don't know what's in there and you give it to the person and when they open it, there's this huge response. And certainly that's true of kids, but that's also true of adults. I like to get, give, get gifts, right? I, I get excited about gifts and the surprise of gifts. I'm sure some of you in the room are uh, that way as well. And uh, so here's a little clip of a, an adult responding to a gift that she was given. Taking care of Mama, third baseman Josh Donaldson played Santa, gifting his mom a brand new Maserati. He says that he made a deal with her that if she quit smoking, he'd buy her the car she wanted oh so bad, as you can tell. So since she hadn't picked up a cigarette in two years, he delivered on his promise. Donaldson is a free agent at the moment, but the Washington Nationals are reportedly interested in signing him. Great son right there. Love it. I think she liked that gift. I mean, even if we didn't see the Maserati and we just saw the response, we could kind of reverse engineer that response back to this gift must be really amazing. And when you look at the birth narratives in Matthew and in Luke, a lot of what you see are responses to the gift of Christ at Christmas, even the, either the announcement of his coming or his actual uh, coming. So in Matthew, we see the Magi traveling possibly 900 miles when they see the star and probably connect it to some prophecies that they knew about. They are willing to respond in that way to the, the coming of the Christ child. Uh, uh, some of these are not positive responses, but they're all pronounced. So like Herod, right? He hears about the coming of this newborn king, and he orders that all baby, all baby boys born in Bethlehem under age two uh, be killed, right? So then we move to Luke, and we see the shepherds that hear the announcement of the Christ child from the angels. And what do they do? Immediately they go from the fields into Bethlehem to see the Christ child lying in a manger. Also in Luke, we see these older Old Testament saints, Anna and Simeon, they are waiting for the Christ child. And when they are there in the temple and they see the baby Jesus, they, they proclaim with great praise and adoration this one who has come. But the first recorded real, real response that we read in the birth narratives is this interaction between these two pregnant women and even one of their babies get, gets in on the action, right? And so this interaction between Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, is what we're looking at uh, this morning. And so you just heard this read. So, so take a look at Luke 1. If you haven't uh, opened up one of those Bibles yet, you want to follow along with me. I'm not going to put these on the, uh, on the screen here. So Luke 1, 41, we see, When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary... 
the baby, that's John the Baptist, uh, leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Uh, this, is, this is a pretty pronounced response to your cousin you know, coming for uh, a visit. Not only uh, is Elizabeth exclaiming, um, but her baby inside of her is, is leaping uh, for joy. And we, 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 if, even if we didn't understand all that's going on in Mary's womb, we would immediately know something significant is happening. Like these kind of responses are not attached to, to some mediocre kind of a gift. This is a significant gift that's being given at Christmas. And so what we want to ask ourselves is why, why the excitement? Why is Elizabeth, and later we'll see Mary uh, in what she proclaims, and even baby John the Baptist, which I don't know if he already had a beard yet or not, but, but I just kind of, anyway, that, sorry. Um, why are they so excited? And then once we understand why they're excited, uh, how can we also respond in a similar way uh, that we see Mary and Elizabeth and John the Baptist and so we're getting a little bit of a coaching session about how to respond at Christmas. Right? So why is she so excited? Well, Elizabeth tells us why she's so excited. Uh, and it's very interesting. What, what she focuses in on is that um, the Lord is fulfilling something and that the Lord is inside Mary's womb. Don't miss that, right? Look at verse 43 and 45 put, put next to each other. She says, Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come? Right? And then 45, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Like, wait, wait a minute. What, what? The Lord told you something and the Lord is in your womb? How's that work? Well, Trinity, okay. <laughs> There's one God, three persons, and so we've, we've got God the Father speaking to her, and you've, you've got the Holy Spirit bringing about this miraculous conception, and the literal second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, inside her womb. I don't know if Elizabeth understands all that, but she understands some of it. And when, when, when it's clicking for her, and we, it tells us that the Holy Spirit is inspiring this response. And so she's starting to understand the significance of what this gift is at Christmas. And then this kind of sets Mary off, right? So she, I think up until this point, probably pretty frightened, pretty nervous. You know, she's had this secret that, that, that was told to her by the angel, but I don't know if she's really talked to anyone up to this point. And so this is a significant moment as she walks into Elizabeth's house, and Elizabeth knows what's going on, that God has told her, God has somehow inspired this by the Spirit. And when, when, when she hears that, it must have been a great relief, and it just sort of unlocks something in Mary. And so she too, inspired by the Holy Spirit, we know she's inspired by the Holy Spirit in this moment because it wound up in Scripture, 
And so now she begins to respond to this reality that she carries in her womb. In verse 46, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord. What does it mean to magnify the Lord? I I think uh, this little quote from John Piper was so helpful to me, first time I heard it, in understanding how uh, you magnify the Lord. Um, He says there are two kinds of magnifying. There's a microscope magnifying and a telescope magnifying. The one makes a small thing look bigger than it is. The other makes a big thing begin to look as big as it really is. We're not called to be microscopes. We're called to be telescopes. Christians are not called to be con men who magnify their product out of all proportion to reality when they know the competitor's product is far superior. There's nothing and nobody superior to God. And so the calling of those who love God is to make His greatness begin to look as great as it really is. This is what Mary is doing. She's making God look as great as He indeed is. She's magnifying. And she says, my soul is magnifying. This is not contrived. This is not just some kind of external religious thing that she's doing out of duty. This is coming from her very inmost parts. And she's saying, I'm magnifying Him uh, as my Savior. As my Savior in, in this Oh, I'm sorry, magnify him as, as Lord in the first phrase. And then she moves on to Savior in verse 47. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So now, again, my spirit, my, my inmost parts, I'm rejoicing in God, my Savior. And so what's happening here is she's getting a, a closer look at who God is. That He is both Lord and He is Savior. We have this line in Joy to the World that I, I think is, is such a wonderful line. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. I mean, you would expect it to say the King reigns, the Lord reigns, God reigns. All those would be appropriate. But it says the Savior reigns. And this is, this is what Mary is getting a glimpse of. The Savior is reigning. And then she kind of digs a little deeper into that idea of the Savior reigning. Uh, Verse 48, For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Both of those have this idea of Savior and reigning. Uh, she's, she's saying, you've saved me. You've saved me from my humble, uh, you've seen me in my humble estate. I, I was vulnerable. I was unseen. But now I've been seen. And you ha- ha- have seen me in this humble estate, this vulnerable place. And now that you've seen me and, and you've intervened in my life, now when people look upon me, they, they call me blessed instead of one who is unseen and unsaved. But also that God is Lord, right? And that this 
Savior Lord is not just good news for Mary. She starts to speak about the generations of vulnerable who will experience his saving, right? The mercy is for those in the plural, not just for her, although she needs it. Right? She needs saving. She knows that. But she understands it's not just for her, who she carries in her womb. It's not just for her. It's actually for the generations of vulnerable. But the mercy is for those, again, who fear God. So there's the reigning part. So this back and forth of him being a savior, but a savior who reigns. And how is God doing that? Somehow he's doing it through the baby that's in her womb. And the, the baby is in a very vulnerable place. This, this is some of the irony here, right? She's in a humble estate. She's vulnerable. And now God has taken up a very vulnerable place in her womb. God is identifying with the most vulnerable of human beings. And this one who's very poor, this teenager probably, who is pregnant and at that time unwed in the Roman Empire in a backwater Jewish town known as Nazareth. She's about as vulnerable of a human on the planet at the time. And though she be that, somehow God is doing something very mighty, very king-like, very sovereign, all through whatever's going on in her womb. This is God's way. This is His way. He always takes humble situations, humble people, people who are weak, works through them. You hear this in so many places in Scripture. So, so, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 26-28, I love this. Paul's writing to a very prideful and haughty church in Corinth. And he knocks them down a few notches in the, verse 26. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. I love that. I, I could just imagine the Corinthians hearing that letter being read. Remember, you are nothing. You are weak. You are foolish. And God chose in His mercy to save you. This is, this is God's way. I, I think as a church, we, we should understand this. We are weak. We are weak. You know, we just celebrated 20 years as a church, and we told mostly fun stories in the 20 years, which I think was appropriate. We, we want to we celebrate, you know, the good things, and there were many, but there were some hard stories too. I mean, I told a little bit of this in, in the anniversary service where, you know, some guy shows up with his family, he's like from Texas. He's going to start a church from scratch in Amherst, Massachusetts. I mean, really? With really no training? I had one week of training, right? Among one of the most unchurched regions in America, mostly among the most unchurched generation in U.S. history, it's pretty weak. 
Chances for success, pretty much zero. In in month 11, through some different circumstances, all our funding was cut, and we, we had to figure out how to raise support so we could keep going. Incredibly weak. Many days, many, many, many months, look at the bills of the church, and I would cash in my, my tithe, put my tithe check into the church account so that we could pay the bills of the church. So weak, so frail. I mean, again, chances of success, zero. I remember purchasing this building and somehow, by God's grace, raising $200,000 for a down payment, which is absolutely miraculous, but emptying out every account to put that $200,000 check, like zero money. And then, oh, wow, we have a building, but we have to heat the building. Having heating bills stack up to the tune of, like, one winter, it was $25,000 of heating bills. Heating oil had gone up over $4 a gallon, and we had no way. I I, I didn't know what to do. And a a parent of a college student, without even knowing that that was even a a problem, put a check for $25,000 in the offering on a Sunday morning, and that's how... We pay the heating bill that year. Uh, year 10, Mel and I had reached a place of absolute exhaustion. Didn't know if we could go on. remember having a meeting with, with some of our leaders, and we are just kind of sharing, like, I don't know if we can keep going. I don't know if we can keep doing this. And those leaders looking at us and saying, we don't know if we can keep going either. We'll probably close the doors. If you leave, we're going to close the doors. It was weak. It was a very weak church, very fragile, very humbling. And still to this day, while there are many indicators that, that things are much different here, and they are, but still, almost all your staff are raising support. It's an amazing staff. I mean, I'm just amazed at the kind of people that God has brought here, but, but most of them are raising support, and a lot of that support has been one-time big gifts that are not reoccurring. So it, it's, it's fragile. It's, it's weak. That's part of, part of our experience as a church. We should know this, that God uses the foolish. He uses the weak to do His gospel ministry. But not only is the church weak and vulnerable, the people in the church are weak and vulnerable. I mean, we have a, a whole bunch of young college students. They're incredibly weak. I mean, they got lots of passion and energy and do amazing things, but they can also be flaky. <laughs> they can get overwhelmed with all kinds of things, and, and it, they are at a place of vulnerability, a place of weakness. We have families who are just trying to keep their head above water, <laughs> and they feel like, if I can just get the kids fed and get them down to bed and somehow figure out how to make financial ends meet, like, we've made it, right? They're weak. They're vulnerable. On top of that, some struggling with mental health issues, some demonic oppression, some sexual brokenness, some tremendous financial strain, 
We're weak. We're a weak church made up of weak people. Right? If, if anyone gets this, I think it, it, it should be our church. And if you're here this morning and you're, you feel vulnerable, you feel weak, you're perfect for the Savior King. Your, your posture of, 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 of having an awareness of that vulnerability, it really is a door that opens you up to this Savior King. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. You can say that, and not just say it religiously. You, you can actually say it from your, your soul because you know it. You know that it's, it's true. And if you don't think you're weak and vulnerable... You probably should listen to these next few verses from Mary. Verse 51. He's shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones. He's exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich. He has sent away empty. That somehow through the baby that's in her womb, God's going to show tremendous strength. And she uses this anthropomorphism of his arm, right? God doesn't have an arm, but it's a way for us to think about a human characteristic that we can then kind of transfer over to God, right? You, you do things with your arm, you do, do strong things with your arm, and that God has strength. He doesn't have his hands tied behind his back. Oh, I wish I could do something. I wish I could take action, but I can't. No, he can. He has the strength of his arm. And what is he doing with all this strength? He's scattering the proud and he's bringing down the mighty. There's both an internal aspect, right? The proud, internal attitude. But then the external reality of that, being mighty, right? Fits together. He's, he's scattering the proud. He is bringing down the mighty, and, and when we hear this, we, lo- we like it. I mean, it sounds good, I think, to most of us, right? Scattering the proud, bringing down the mighty. When, when we see the mighty fall, there's something in us, we're like, yes, that's right. It's what should happen. Right? We see like a, a Harvey Weinstein, we see him, right? This, this Hollywood mogul, rich, powerful, he's taking advantage of his power, and, and now we see pictures of him. And he's got this little walker, and he's having to go to court proceedings, and he's bleeding out money like crazy with lawyers and payoffs. And we go, yes, that's what should happen to him, right? Or, or the, 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 the college admission scandal where you have these very rich, powerful people, and they pay off a guy who pays off a guy at the Ivy League so that their rich, snobby kid can go to school. And they got busted, right? And we see the proud and the mighty, and we see them fall. We're like, yes, that's what should happen. But we want to be careful there because we all tend to be proud and mighty, or at least desire to be mighty, right? I mean, this is our, our fallen, sinful nature. It is always trying to, to rear its head with this internal pride and this external might. 
It's also the spirit of our age, this internal pride and this external might. It's also what Satan loves to pour gasoline on, right? (laughs) And so our, our own fallen nature and the spirit of our age and Satan himself trying to get these attitudes and actions into motion. And it's a barrier to receiving the Savior King, Jesus. Because those who are humble are getting lifted up, right? That's what Mary says. And those who are hungry are getting filled up. This, this little phrase shows up in the New Testament a couple of times. First uh, Peter 5, 5 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, what we want to understand here is that God's actually being merciful to both groups. By scattering the proud, bringing down the mighty, He's giving them the opportunity to realize that they actually are vulnerable. They have no power over sin and its effects. They may not understand that, but God is helping them by scattering the proud and bringing down the humble. Their only hope is that they would realize their need for the Savior King. Jesus communicates this many times. Here's one example. He's talking to, uh, well, he's having an interaction with one of the, the, the group of Pharisees there. Mark 2, scribes and the Pharisees, they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, right? These vulnerable. And he says to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, well, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He's not saying that the Pharisees don't need Dr. Jesus. He's saying they don't realize that they need Dr. Jesus, that they're proud and they think they're mighty, and they're so proud and they're so mighty that they don't understand their need for the Savior King. This is what has to happen when you become a Christian, right? That, that, that inward pride and, and that external might is something that, that you realize was a sham and that you were actually absolutely vulnerable before a holy God. And that your only hope is that that holy God would come down and die for your sin and forgive you and that you need Dr. Jesus. That, that's how you become a Christian. But again, as as Christians, again, it, it just rears its ugly head, this inward pride and outward might. And why, why is he doing this? Why is Savior King Jesus doing all this? Well, verse 54, 55, this is really, it's really great. He says, she says, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. She realizes that this one that is in her womb is part of a much larger story. I mean, we've been talking about Path to Paradise for the last several Sundays, mapping, the, the, tracking the, the trail of, of God's redeeming work throughout the Old Testament. And part of why Mary is magnifying God in this way is because she's realizing this is way bigger than me. It's way bigger than even my time period. God has been working this out 
and it's being fulfilled in this wand that she's carrying in her womb. I think for some of us over, over the last semester, there's been that kind of awareness of, wow, this, this story is way bigger than anything I, I could have, have dreamed. The, the art on the wall in here is supposed to remind you of that larger story. Right? I don't know if you've taken any time to look at this, but Cassie Frizz and, and Zena Giggy, they spent lots of time putting these together. But what it is is basically the, the history of the Scriptures, right? And so you've got the, 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 the creation fall, you have the flood, you have the Passover, the third picture there, you have the exile, so sort of the, the time of the, of the prophets there. So that's Old Testament. And then New Testament over here, this is uh, for the birth of Christ, which is just a, a map of, of the Holy Land. And then you have Jesus' uh, baptism, Jesus' death on the cross, and Jesus' resurrection. So even as you're worshiping in this room, you're inside a larger story. Right? And this is, this is partly what Mary is realizing. Wow, I'm part of a larger story of what God has been doing throughout the ages and what God is going to do through the Savior King, Jesus So why are they so excited? Because the Savior King has come. This one who is lifting up the humble and the hungry. The one who is bringing down the proud and the mighty, both in His mercy. Such that everyone could proclaim joy to the world. The Savior comes, right? The Savior reigns on this earth. And so I, I don't know who you are. You're probably a mix. I know that. I, I, can, I can kind of pendulum swing back and forth, right? Being humble and hungry and desperate and then proud and mighty, all, and sometimes at the same time, right? And that's part of, part of the, the indwelling sin that we have as sinful human beings, but, but we've been saved. We sinners have been saved by the Savior King. Right? And, and this is cause for much rejoicing. And we can say with Mary that our soul magnifies the Lord, that our spirit rejoices in God, our Savior. We're reminded of this every, every time we come to this table. We are reminded that not only was Jesus so vulnerable as to become a baby in a womb, but also so vulnerable that He would allow that human body to be killed. I, th I think there's no more vulnerable place. I mean, I, I think we're, 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 we're all, in, in some way, we're, we're scared of this reality that we have a mortality, right? We feel vulnerable to that. I mean, I was at Planet Fitness yesterday. Everybody's trying to fight against that, try to keep healthy, keep, keep that away, you know? <laughs> but it's coming, right? We're incredibly vulnerable. Whether we think we're proud and mighty or we're humble and hungry, we are vulnerable to sin and its effects. And so Jesus placed himself in that place of that absolute vulnerability of being killed. Right? But did that 
so that he could reign. The Savior reigns over sin and its effect. He reminds, reminds us of that as he takes the cup and blesses it and gives it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. His, his vulnerability was not just for the sake of being vulnerable and, and identifying with us, although that is very powerful, but such that he could rule and reign over sin and its effects. And so again, every time we come to the table, we're reminded of that. Him vulnerably placing himself in a place of not just being a human, but allowing himself to be killed on a bloody cross. But not just that, doing that so that he could rule and reign over sin and its effects. And if you've received that by faith, then, then you can rejoice, you can magnify God for having done that. If you've not received that by faith, do so this morning. Receive this salvation that comes from King Jesus and from no other. Receive that by faith and trust in Him this morning. And so as we come up here in a few minutes, let's, let's receive this, let's be reminded, let's be humbled, let's be filled, let's be scattered a bit, let's be, bro- let's be bro- broken down, right? for the purpose of receiving our Savior King Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we, we have to admit that there are times when we're more excited about a Maserati than, uh, than you. We have to confess, Lord, that there are times when our singing or our religious activities are exactly that. They're just religious They're external, and our hearts themselves are not magnifying. Our spirits are not rejoicing, Lord, but we don't want to be that way. So would you come in your mercy, forgive us of that, and restore us, Lord. Give our hearts cause to to worship you, to rejoice in you in a way that is not contrived, but it is actually from our very core. Thank you that you have died in the place of sinners as us, Lord, to raise us up from the ultimate of vulnerable places, that of being under sin and its effects. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for raising us up out of that. Thank you that that salvation is not just for now, but forevermore. And we praise you. We magnify you. We rejoice in you this morning as we remember these things. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.